Well, just want to welcome all of you this morning, those that join us online. We actually have a lot of people that join us online, live in the morning and then throughout the week. And so that is uh, just awesome to be able to connect with so many people in this room and outside this room. We're in the third part of the series that we've called Christian Confusion. And we've been talking specifically about the word Christian. Uh, because as a young church, we want our trajectory, we want our direction ultimately to be set by Jesus and not religion. Uh, a big part of what motivated us when we began this community is that we saw an opportunity to do something bigger than just Christian because we felt that for far too long, huge segments, huge segments of especially Americans have settled for Christians or for Christian. And that's why there are Christians on every side, on both sides of every issue. Uh, there have been Christians on both sides of every war. There's Christians on both sides of every political argument, legal argument, even moral argument. Uh, some of you, you have family members that uh, you guys, you'd say, we're all Christians, we all believe the same stuff, but you cannot get along with them. In fact, you're not even sure you want to see them this holidays. Just like, and, and the reason why Christians can be so divided and opposed to one another, and as we've learned, uh, quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and a deservedly infamous group, is because this term Christian was actually manufactured by people who were on the outside looking in, what do we call this group of people? It was a derogatory term, and every derivative of the term Christian only shows up three times in the New Testament, and it's not defined. Uh, the term that people use, the people that followed Jesus, the term they used for themselves to describe themselves was what word? Disciples, that's right. And the synonymous word was follower. These were the terms that they used to, to describe and define themselves. And we've said for the last uh, two weeks that you can be Christian and believe just about anything and live any kind of lifestyle. And if anybody challenges you, you can say, hey, don't judge me. I'm a Christian. You can point to a verse and, and tell them about something you believe. And that I'm a Christian. And the key difference between a Christian and a disciple, as we're learning, is that Christian is often all about what you believe. But disciple is about what a person does. Christian is uh, following, like I'm following Jesus, like I follow him on Instagram. Wow, check out that lo-fi pic of Jesus feeding 5,000 people on the mountainside. Hashtag unlimited fish and chips. Uh, you know, a disciple is about following and doing Disciple is following that does. Jesus, tell me how to live my life. And before you even tell me what the answer is, the answer is yes, I will do it. And if you consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, one thing that you and I need to understand is that people that aren't Jesus followers, that are outside of the Christian community, they're watching. They're watching us. They're paying attention. For some of us, uh, we adopt the label Christian, but people on the outside look in and go, yeah, you may be Christian, but I, I don't really, I'm not sure you look like Jesus. You know, it's why some of you, maybe in the past, that you stepped away, maybe even for years, uh, and chose not to be involved in the local church because you thought, yeah, they may be Christian, but they're nothing like Jesus. I mean, this cannot possibly be what Jesus meant. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because somewhere along the way, large segments of the Jesus movement forgot or they missed or they got misinformed that Jesus made it unmistakably clear as to what should define us. And we've looked at this for the past couple of, the week, past couple of weeks because Jesus said, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not simply what you believe or what you do on a Sunday morning, but this should be the defining 
characteristic of a person who's a follower of me, of Jesus. And this is how they should proactively and reactively treat other people. And so for the last two weeks, we've talked specifically about this. And this is a huge deal. Because if we don't get this figured out and we don't get this right, then nothing else matters. We will just continue to be part of a problem, perpetuating a problem that's been going on for a long time. We will not be part of the solution. We'll end up just repeating mistakes of the past. And we will unnecessarily drive people away from Jesus. And I want to get really clear on this. What's at stake? What's at stake is the faith of the next generation. And to make it more personal... What's at stake is your children's faith, your grandchildren's faith. So we, that's why we're talking about this. And today, we're, we're going to talk specifically about how should Jesus followers treat people who aren't Jesus followers. Jesus followers who, you know, we're supposed to love one another. That's already like a difficult assignment right there. Uh, today, I want to talk about how are we supposed to respond to people, towards people who are outside of the faith. Now, for those of you that aren't Christians, and we have people that are part of our community, they're, they're not Christians, they're not Jesus followers. We say all the time, you can belong before you believe. Uh, but for if you fall, fall in that category, you're going to love part of this because part of you is going to go, yeah, I've been saying this for a long time, or this is one of the reasons why I've kind of kept Christians or church at, at an arm's distance. Uh, for others of you, what we're going to talk about this morning may be a, a little bit unsettling, especially if maybe if you grew up in more of a, a conservative, you know, strong conservative leaning background, and you're going to go, I, I don't know about it. He might be a heretic. So you go home and you ask yourself this question, not do I like the sermon, not does it make me comfortable, uh, what does this do to me politically? I want you to go home and ask this question. Is that what scripture teaches because if you're a follower of Jesus, that's where we take our marching orders, right? So today we're going to answer this question uh, for us that are followers of Jesus or we are disciples. How are we to respond to people who aren't or who've decided they don't want to be? Now to begin to answer that, we've got to go back to something else Jesus said as he left this earth. Uh, many of you, if you grew up in the church, many of us grew up referring to this as the Great Commission. Jesus gathers his closest guys together as well as some other men and women, and he gathers on this hillside. He's about to leave for good, and here's what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples. There's our word. He didn't say go make Christians. That term hadn't even been invented yet. Go and make disciples. And the little Greek word make disciples is actually a singular Greek word that means to cause, to cause someone to believe or to become a follower or a learner or a pupil. He says, I want you to go and cause people to become my followers, people of all nations, baptizing them in the name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then he left the earth. And his closest followers, his disciples, began doing that very thing. And they developed these, we call them churches, but they, the Greek word is ekklesias, these gatherings uh, all over the place. And they began to live and teach in such a way that people were drawn to and became followers of Jesus. And it grew and grew and grew, and things were going great. The movement was focused on the event, the resurrection of Jesus, and that to follow him was to love one another as he loved us. And so for about the first 300 years, things were going great. But then after 300 years, Rome made religions legal. And then they adopted Christianity as the official religion. And then things turned bad. 
Why? Because now suddenly the church had the power. And this is very important. Anytime the church or Jesus followers or Christians leverage anything other than love, we go backwards, not forwards. Because Jesus said, by this one thing, all people will know you are my followers, how you love one another. And once the church got powered, they decided, you know what, this is a little too exhausting. We've got the power now. We can call the shots, and we're not going to leverage love anymore. We're going to leverage power, and we're going to leverage authority. And after the church gained control, and just a quick glance at church history, the Great Commission became something very different. It became this. Therefore, go and impose my teachings, values, and worldview on all nations, threatening them with judgment and destruction if they don't do everything I have commanded you. That's the message of a group that has power and has control. This was not the message of Jesus. Neither was this the message of what would become the New Testament. And it's not how this little fledgling group of Jesus followers grew to such a point that ultimately the empire of Rome embraced Christianity as the religion of choice. The West was won spiritually by a group of people that understood that their goal was not to impose on or to threaten people with something, but to win them. The Apostle Paul, he was the ultimate example of this because he decided to go into the non-Jewish world and to create Jesus followers out of people that had their own religion, their own way of life, their own worldview, and they were not looking for a new one. And here's how he described his approach in this letter to the Corinthians, which, by the way, was a very, very tough group of people. To convince. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. In other words, I don't power up. I don't get judgmental. I don't get self-righteous. I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why, Paul? Why did you do that? To win. To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. What's Christ's law? To love one another as I have loved you. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all people. So that by all possible means... I might save some. Why, Paul? Because Jesus said it. I want you to go into all the world. I want you to cause people to become my followers. I want, and I've learned that the only way to do that is to win them. And, and we all get this, right? I mean, have you ever uh, beat out other applicants in applying for a certain school? Or have you ever, ever beat out applicants in, 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 for another job or uh, as a candidate? Have you ever won a contract? Well, how did you do that? Well, you ended up, you made that school or that business want you or your product more than they wanted anybody else's or another competitor's. You, you won them over by convincing them that you or your product was better than everybody else's. I mean, are you in a relationship? How did you win her heart? How did you win his heart? You won them over by making them want you more than they wanted anybody else. You know, for me, I knew how to cook, and none of my friends did, so I get Shauna. So I made myself better than all of them. You know, you, you, you make them want you more than anybody else. You don't win somebody's heart by imposing your will. So Paul says, here's my relationship with outsiders. The outside, the believe in Jesus community. I, I want to win them. 
So I'll become whatever I need to become in order to convince them that this, this is a better way, that this is a better product, that Jesus is worth giving your attention and your life to. And I will do whatever it takes to win those that are, who are far from God and, and wondering if there's a way to connect with God the Creator. And again, for the first 300 years, this was the approach. This was the approach of these early Jesus followers. But somewhere along the way, we ended up, we, they decided we're not going to leverage love anymore. We're going to leverage power and we're going to leverage authority. And they went, we went from winning to threatening. We went from God is love to God will get you. And whenever the church or believers or Christians leverage anything other than Christ loved us, the love of God, we go backwards, not forwards. And I'm not the first person to say this, but we have gotten it wrong. And we have set ourselves unnecessarily at odds with, with culture. We have made ourselves unnecessarily resistible when the love of Jesus should be almost irresistible. And so Paul, uh, if, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll, we'll also have the verses on the screen, uh, but you can pull that up, uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, and just real quick, Paul, originally he went to Corinth. He goes and uh, he shares the good news about Jesus. Corinth was like Las Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was a very, very immoral port city about 15 miles southwest of Athens. Very, very pagan, very, very sensual. Uh, he goes there, he starts this little Jesus community, and he's trying, teach, trying to teach them the ways of Jesus. But they're surrounded by a culture that opposed everything, everything Jesus represented. And so he writes letters of encouragement and to teach them, uh, here's how you follow Jesus in a culture like the one that you live in, not, one, not much different than our own. Uh, well, he gets news that whatever, wherever he is, that there's some bad stuff going on in Corinth and that there's something so bad going on in the church, church in Corinth uh, that people outside the church are going, seriously, nobody does this. So he's addressing this issue, and in addressing it, he gives us insight how Jesus followers, how disciples should relate and respond to people who aren't Jesus followers. So this is right in the middle of the letter. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. And what he introduces is that there's, this, there's a Jesus follower morality, and then there is a non-Jesus follower morality. There's a Jesus morality and then there's a pagan outside the church morality. There are church standards and then there are non-church standards. And what's going on in your church is so bad that even the pagans are going, are you kidding me? Like, that's not okay. Now you want to know what it is. So uh, a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you're proud. So to clarify, there was a guy in this church and his mom, uh, his mom died or his parents got divorced, his dad uh, remarried, and somewhere along the way, this guy started hooking up with his stepmom. And now they're like living together. So they're in this relationship. And as some of you remember, uh, sorry, Jerry Springer. And, you know, this is one of the shows where like the pagans from Arkansas go, dude, that's just wrong. So, you know, and there's this ongoing relationship. And so Paul, Paul's going, are you kidding me? And you're letting this go on and, and you're proud about it? Now, when you think first century church, think a uh, large community group, something even smaller than us. It's where like everybody knows everybody's business, so everybody knows what's going on. And uh, so, so this guy's showing up at somebody's house, you know, and having coffee cake before Bible study, even though they didn't have a Bible. Everybody knows what's going on, but they're not addressing it. 
And Paul says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship this man that's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit and as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment. To which we go, whoa, Paul, the Bible teaches you're not to judge others. And we just talked about judging others a couple weeks ago, or judging, and we're like, Paul, the Bible teaches you're not supposed to judge others. Paul say, I'm right in the Bible. Okay, I, I get this. So, you know, but the Bible doesn't say anything about judging. Jesus and the New Testament writers say something about judging. And Jesus and the New Testament writers don't say we shouldn't judge. They tell us who to judge. The Apostle Paul's like, I even met this guy, but if what you're saying is true, I've, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. I've already passed judgment, and here's why I've passed judgment. Because this guy is, he's in the Jesus community. He is a follower of Jesus. He is signed on to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and his behavior is way off course for that of a Jesus follower. In fact, even the non-Jesus followers are shocked. And then he says something really strong. It's a legal phrase. He says, I want you to put this guy out of the church. And then he says, and hand this man over to Satan. It's like, I want you to make Satan his parole officer. Meet your new parole officer, Satan. So it's just like, great day for him. So now, of course, this is just figurative language. It's figurative. He's saying, I, I want you to tell this guy, listen, if you want to do this, that's fine. But you can't do this here. All right, like, like so, so go out there and like go all in, go all in with this relationship. So just make that happen because the Apostle Paul knew what you and I, most of us already know because we've learned the hard way. It's something that everybody figures out eventually. And that is that sin always has built in consequences. One of the writers in the Bible says that the wages, Paul says later on in a different letter, that the wages of sin is death. And in context, he's not referring to physical death. What he's saying is that every time you sin, there's a death. And you don't have to be a God follower, a Jesus follower to get this because we know it's just a reality. Sin has built-in gotchas. There's a death. Sin will, will kill your finances. For some of you, there was something that you started doing maybe when you were younger and it was really, really fun and then it became an addiction. For some, sin will kill a marriage. Sin will kill a relationship. Sin will kill your relationship with your kids. It's, there's things, you know, we, we get into and afterwards, like, I wish I would have never done this. I wish I would have never said this, but it doesn't matter. It's too late. Sin kills things. And it doesn't matter if you're a religious person or not. Every sin has a consequence. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, get him out there so he'll face the full consequences of his sin and then eventually, he's going to come running back here. And he'll go, I have made a horrible mistake. I never should have done that. I repent. And then you can take him back. This isn't send him to hell. Rather, sometimes what it is, is that the shortest route back to God is to get all the way into your sin, let it beat you up really bad, and then you come back to a church like ours and be with the rest of us beat up sinners. And that's just how it works. 
And Paul decides, he decides to clear up something that he thinks they might be confused about from a previous letter that he had written. And here's, uh, it's here that he answers the question for us. How are Jesus followers supposed to respond to people who aren't Jesus followers? How do we respond to people who are living in such a way that it's outside the bounds and the rules of what a Jesus follower should do? He says, I wrote you in my letter, and this is a letter that we lost. I didn't lose it. It got lost somewhere along the way. Uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world or people that are outside of the Jesus follower community who are immoral or greedy or swindlers and or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Now, this is helpful. This is help for us, helpful for us because some of you, you go to holiday gatherings or you go to family reu reunions like, I'm not even sure I should be around these people. Or some of you, you go to work and you're like, you know, I'm trying to be a Jesus follower, but I'm in a context and I work with all of these people and they're not even really interested in it. It's like, should I even be in this context or listening to this? Should I, should I go to lunch with them? I'm not supposed to hang out with them. I'm not sure. And the Apostle Paul's like, yes. You're not supposed to divorce yourselves relationally from everybody who's not a Jesus follower. We're not supposed to disengage from people who have habits or beliefs or behaviors or morality that's different from our own. Paul says, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be, and he doesn't use the word Christian, anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such people. Because in that culture, it was, again, if you're eating with somebody, they're saying, I believe one thing, but their life isn't lining up, then you're affirming that. He says, if there's someone on the inside of your relational Jesus community who's like, I know what Jesus teaches, I even believe in him, I'm just going to live the way I want to. He's saying, you're supposed to judge that person. You're supposed to hold them accountable. You're to have a conversation to Jesus living and Jesus lifestyle. And then he asks a question that's at the epicenter of his point and our point. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And the answer is, it's none of my business. So let me ask you, if you're a Jesus follower, you call yourself a Christian, but now you're afraid to use the term Christian because you think I'll get mad at you. What business is it of yours to hold a non-Christian, a non-Jesus follower accountable for their behavior? And the answer is, it's none of your business. Now, to be really clear, I'm not talking about civil, state, local, or federal law. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. That's, that's a different set of rules. I am talking about how it, when, how it is that you're to handle your body or your language or your marriage or your money or honesty or how you do business for someone who's never subscribed to the Jesus standard of living. What business do I have in holding them accountable to a standard they never signed up for? And Jesus' point is it's not your business, and it's not your responsibility. So, see, the reason why so many have pushed back or avoided or even walked away from exploring church is because they felt like there was a group of Christians that were judging them for something that they never signed up for in the first place, and they began to feel judged. And I've interacted with so many that this is their experience, and I always apologize for a group of people who tried to leverage something other than love because that approach backfired. In our country, in our world, is full of people that this has been their experience. See, in the first century, they didn't expect non-Jesus followers to behave like Jesus followers. This is the game changer. 
They expected Jesus' followers to behave like Jesus' followers. And so Paul wraps up saying, are you not to judge those inside? Will not God judge those outside? And we get it so backwards. The church has been notorious for policing the behavior of people outside the church, but we have done a poor job policing the behaviors of people inside the Jesus community. The Apostle Paul says, no, it's the other way around. You have enough work to do in policing yourself. Lay off everybody else. They're not accountable to your standard of morality or honesty or anything. They never signed up for that. You are to win those outside the church, not judge them. You are to judge yourselves. Now, again, I know the judge word, it bothers us, but if you're a parent or if you've ever been a kid, you understand this, right? If you're a parent, you've ever been a kid. So that's all of us, right? So in your household, you had rules. In the household you grew up in, you had rules. And when you disobeyed the rules, the judge showed up. And it was usually mom or dad. And for, in many of your cases, it was probably dad. And the judge showed up. And he might have something solid in his hand. We don't know. Uh, but, you know, or they came together and they judged you. They assessed the situation. They said, in this house, household, here's how we live. Here's, uh, here's what we do, here's what we don't do, here's how we speak, here's how we don't speak to each other, and if you're going to live here, here's how we're going to get along. It is not a good household that doesn't have any rules. It, it, it's not a good family, it's not good, good being a good parent if there's never any judgment. So like in my house, there was judgment. If my kids broke one of the rules, I held them accountable. Growing up in the household that I grew up in, if I broke one of my family's rules, I was held accountable if I got caught. And that's all Paul's talking about. <laughs> that, that once you become part of a body, become part of a family, or become part of the church, once you join the Jesus community, there are life rules. There are life standards. There is accountability. And we have been called in grace and truth. Don't miss the next two weeks. We've been called in grace and truth to judge each other. But we have no business, no business judging the morals or the language or, or the behaviors of those outside the Jesus community, what they do with their bodies or their money or the way they live uh, outside the church. Another way I would have said this when my kids were growing up is that I do not care, for those of you that have kids, I don't care if your kids do their homework and study. They're not my kids. However, I feel very strongly about my children doing their homework and studying. You know, if my kids don't study and do their homework, I address that. And if they felt judged, I didn't care. I'm the judge. You're part of my household. Go do your homework. But I'm never going to walk into your house for your kids or your grandkids and say, do your homework. They're not my kids. And that's all Paul's saying. Now, this is such a big deal. A great illustration of this is several years ago. A pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll and his wife Grace, uh, uh, prior to Mark hitting some speed bumps in his life, uh, they wrote a book called Real Marriage. And actually, it got so popular, uh, they actually got interviewed, uh, invited to be part of a show and get interviewed on The View. How many of you have ever seen The View? Okay, just, all right, good. For the rest, don't, don't, I'm not going to say anything positive or negative about it. So, uh, but, but imagine you're on The View, and so I'll just let you know, it is not like, like a bed of conservatism, right? So, uh, so you imagine you're on The View, you're a pastor, and you've got your wife there, and you're talking about sex and Christian marriage on this show. 
Uh, and there's one individual, Elizabeth, she's like the one conservative. She's like not even there. She's gone that day, so nobody's going to be sticking up for you. Uh, and it's just a bit of a hostile environment. But the interview is actually going well, and it's going well. And then Whoopi Goldberg, uh, she appears perplexed about this whole idea of abstaining from sex outside the context of marriage. And so then she asks a great question, and I kind of want you to think about how you would answer this question. Here's what she asks. I just have to ask, because you're talking a lot about being married. Now, if you're widowed and you meet somebody, you don't want to get married again, are you saying that the widow or the widower should just do without because God doesn't like it? Like, Mark, I, I, I've been married and my husband or my wife dies and I don't want to get married again because marriage is so complicated. It was so much work the first time. Like, are you saying that people who are widows or widowers, if they don't want to get married again, just can't have sex anymore? Like, is that what you're saying? And that's actually a really good question. Now, one response would be, uh, well, that's what the Bible teaches. You know, if you're not married, then you're not supposed to have sex. That's one approach to which most people would say, okay, peace out. Another response would be, like, I don't know. Like, it just feels like you feel awkward. Like, I just don't know, and we just don't go anywhere. But here was his response. And how do you argue with this? I worship a guy who died and rose as a virgin. It's like, we're bringing Jesus into this? Like, Mary gets all the virgin press, right? So, I worship a guy who died and rose as a virgin. So, that example would be that you can live a full, great life without being sexually active. In other words, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling every widow or widower what to do. I, I just want you to know that there's a category of life that can, where life can be satisfying and that people can be happy without being sexually active. That's, that's all I'm saying. I'm not judging anybody. And then Whoopi, she wanted a bit of more of an explanation. They were kind of running short on time. And so she asked, how does that work? I mean, like you, you've, you've created a category, but what does that look like? And then Grace, Mark's wife, she actually responds like this. We know a lot of widows, actually, and single moms, and they are very happy. They have a relationship with Jesus. They're very happy serving other people, and they can be content. If they desire to have sexual relations again when they get married, yes, but they can be content without that. In other words, there's, there's a category. There's a category of very content, very happy, satisfied people who are not in and out of, people, uh, in and out of bed with people that they're not married to. It's like, I, I just want you to know such a thing exists, that there are Christian men and women who can take what the Scripture says about marriage and sex seriously, and they actively live that way, and they're content, and they're fulfilled, and they're living meaningful lives. Like, I, I'm not telling you you have to do it. I'm just telling you that it's possible. It's worth it. Come take a look. We're not going to drag you, and we're not going to push you away. See, that's how you answer a difficult question in such a way that you understand it's none of my business to judge you. It's not my business to judge what non-Jesus people do with their lives or their bodies or their sexuality or their money or their time. It's none of my business. What my business is, what my business is, is to follow Jesus to the best of my ability and to allow people into my life and for me to get into other people's lives who are trying to follow Jesus to the best of their ability and to make sure I'm doing a good job 
uh, policing our behaviors with one another instead of trying to police everybody else's. And then to take our cues from Jesus and from Paul doing whatever we can to serve and love and invest in the lives of people outside the faith, to, to live in such a way and love in such a way that it's authentically winsome until they come to the point that they go like, I don't really want to be outside of whatever this is anymore. In fact, I, what does it take to become a part of whatever this is that you're a part of? And I'm telling you, when we get this right, people don't feel coerced, they feel drawn. And you know, you know this. Because most of you in this room or those of you that are listening, most of you, you're Christians, you're Jesus followers, and I know that how that happened. I know how it happened. You weren't coerced. You were one. You were drawn. It didn't happen because somebody imposed their beliefs and their values and their worldview on you, threatening you with judgment and, and, and destruction if you didn't do everything God had commanded. No, there was something, something winsome about the person or the people in your life that led you to that point of understanding and decision. It helped you discover Jesus. In fact, as I'm saying this right now, names and faces are coming to your mind of people that were winsome in your life. It may have been a parent, a grandparent, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, someone. And you, just, and you remember them with fondness. And you're just so grateful for them. That's how it's supposed to work. And at times, if you're a Jesus follower, you are going to make people feel guilty, but not condemned. And the reason they feel guilty is because they look at the way you treat others, how you treat your professor or your fellow students, how you treat your parents or your husband or your wife or your kids, or how you do money, uh, how you uh, do your time. It's like, you know what? Uh, being around them, I don't necessarily like that it makes me feel bad about me, but I don't feel condemned by them. I feel kind of, I actually feel kind of challenged. Like, I, I want a bit of what they've got. I feel challenged to kind of rethink how I'm living my life. And there's something different about them in a good way. It's a winsome way. And I kind of want whatever it is that they have. So the bottom line is this. We are to love one another and stop judging outsiders. We're to love one another. And part of loving one another is, hey, I love you enough because I'm in proximity to you to, to get into your business a little bit. Because I just see right now you're off track or you're headed, or you're living in a direction, man, it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt people you love. And because I love you enough, like I'm, I'm judging that. I'm, I'm coming in, and I'm going to get it in your business. Because I don't want to, to see your relationships hurt with the people around you or with God. And I know you don't want to crash and burn. Our responsibility is to love one another in such a way that people are drawn to watch us live, watch us love, and even watch how we die and find it nearly if not irresistible. I mean, can you imagine where things might be if Christians had never, if we had never abandoned love as our primary point of leverage? Can you imagine for some of you where some of your family members would be if some of the Christians in their experience had leveraged love over judgment? I'm telling you, if, if we get this right, if we decide that we are, we're going to figure out how to love better those on the inside and we're going to work to win, not judge those on the outside, things will change. For some of you, it would heal your families. 
And for some of you, it's just going to change the lives of the people that you know in this city. Please don't miss next week. Let's pray. God, uh, I don't know why it is that we just seem to gravitate for those of us that follow you, that we're Christians, and it seems like the, the more years that go by that, that our level of understanding and remember what he, remembering what it was like to be outside of that community, it just, it just seems to get so gray and fuzzy and so we can forget what it's like. And I pray for each one of us that we all have people in our life that you have uniquely positioned us to, to influence them, to love them in such a way that they experience you. And God, there are times, especially depending on our temperament or personality, for some of us, we find it really difficult. But God, I pray that you would partner with us to overcome whatever that wall is between us and that we would just truly set aside the whole judging of the people in our lives that are outside the faith and begin to love them with the kind of love that throws them off balance and begins to raise questions. And Father, I, I pray for all of us too. Uh, sometimes we're just great cowards when it comes to talking to people that we know and care about and we see them making decisions in their life that are ultimately going to hurt them and we're cowards to talk about it and to approach it. We're conflict avoidant. And God, I pray that you would help us to overcome that because we need each other. We, we need each other's perspective and we need that kind of love and that authentic community. And God, I believe that your spirit can make it happen here and that God, we will just see wonderful life transformation as we begin to push out of our life the things that we need to push out and then embrace the things we need to embrace. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen.